Good morning, everyone.
All right. Uh, good morning. All right. Uh, could you turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2? Let's start at verse 1. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And as you can see on the board today, we'll be in our 103rd hour in this uh, series on Ephesians. And today we'll be, begin to note Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12, which presents the five descriptions of unregenerate Gentiles in Ephesians 2, 11. And it's related to the eight privileges God gave the Jews in Romans 9, 4, chapter 9, verses 4 and 5. So uh, today, uh, starting to look at uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12, and today we'll start it off by noting the five descriptions in this verse of unregenerate Gentiles, and uh, and it's related to the eight privileges God gave the Jews in Romans 9, verses 4 through 5. So that uh, will be our subject today. And uh, without further ado, let's take a moment of silent prayer, which is our custom. We take a moment of silent prayer to examine ourselves, to determine if we're in fellowship with God. Because any mental, verbal, or overt act of sin that we knowingly commit will cause us to lose fellowship with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. But according to 1 John 1, 9, if we give our, confess our sins to the Father, He, God the Father, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. In other words, He purifies us from each and every wrongdoing. We maintain that fellowship by obeying the Spirit, who speaks to us through the Scriptures which He's inspired. And that's when we're obeying the commands of Ephesians 5.18 to be filled with the Spirit and Colossians 3.16 to let the Word of Christ richly dwell in our souls. So if there's anything that's bothering you, disturbing or distracting you, do what 1 Peter 5.7 says, cast all your anxieties upon the Lord because He cares for you. So with that in mind, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day that you've given to us, another day to study your word. We thank you for those who might be joining us live or through the later date, through recordings on the website. We thank you for the grace, the faith, the salvation, your work on our behalf in eternity past, the personal work of your Son of the Cross, and the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives from regeneration to resurrection. And Father, we pray the Holy Spirit would do a mighty work through both myself as the communicator today and those in the audience that are your children. I pray your children, by the power of the Spirit, will be able to learn, understand, and concentrate, and apply, carefully consider the passages and principles that we uh, will be noting today and for the purpose of personal application. I pray that not only each individual be spoken to in the audience, but also those who, uh, the whole corp, uh, as a corporate unit, the church would be spoken to. I pray that you would empower me to do this by the power of the Spirit, helping to communicate your full counsel today with regards to this passage in Ephesians chapter 2, 11 through 22. Help me to do so with accuracy and clarity, reverence, respect, and power so that your people could receive the necessary spiritual nourishment as your words teaches us that uh, man does not live on bread alone, but from every word that proceeds out of your mouth. So we pray the Spirit would do a mighty work through all of us here this, uh, this morning, resulting in more of, uh, all of us continuing to grow in the grace and knowledge of our great God and Savior, your Son, Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And so in His name we pray. Amen. 
Okay, the, the, I was looking at the, uh, the, the what I wrote here on the board for our, our, our description of what we're going to do today. Actually, it's uh, uh, it, I said uh, the five descriptions of unregenerate Gentiles in Ephesians 2.11 is related to the eight privileges God gave the Jews in Romans 9, 4, in chapter 9, verses 4 through 5. It's actually, it's actually verse 12, not verse 11. So um, anyway, so I did that. I, I just wanted to correct that and uh, for you. So I am pretty sure that, yeah, yeah, it's verse, it's all verse 12. So anyway, so I, I, I uh, so if you got a little confused there, I, I corrected the uh, typo and probably not a typo. It's probably, did I do it on my notes here too? Did I, did I have that? Yeah, you did. <laughs> okay. That's interesting. Okay. Well, I don't know. I don't know what I was doing that day. wasn't wasn't paying attention. Anyways, all right. Let's look at that. Let's uh, as we've been doing. Let's read the whole chapter, and uh, we'll read it in the Net Bible of the whole chapter. And then, actually, you know what? We'll let's do it. We'll do another translation today. Let's read it. Uh, let's start off in the uh, uh, today's NIV. We'll do it today. Uh, we'll read chapter two in Ephesians chapter two in, in the today's NIV. Then we'll go back and look at these same verses in, in my translation. Chapter, the whole chapter, and then we'll we'll begin a study, a detailed study of Ephesians chapter two, verse twelve, and we do that because we want to look at verse twelve in its in its context, and meaning what got got on immediately before this and what comes after this. So we want to interpret this verse, like all verses, in its particular context. And so uh, let's look at Ephesians chapter two, verse one. If you look at with me on the board, uh, and I'm reading again from the today's NIV today, Ephesians chapter two, verse one. Paul says, "As for you." You were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the rule of the kingdom of the year, the spirit who is now at work on those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to, it, to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Therefore, verse 11, remember that formerly you who were Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the human body by human hands. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both uh, made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and he preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. 
In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Let's look at my translation of those exact same verses on the board. Now, correspondingly, even though each and every one of you is a corporate unit with spiritually dead ones because of your transgressions, in other words, because of your sins, each and every one of you formerly lived by means of these in agreement with the standard of the unregenerate people of this age, which is the production of the cosmic world system in agreement with the standard of the sovereign ruler, namely the sovereign governmental authority ruling over the evil spirits residing in the earth's atmosphere, specifically the spirit who is presently working in the lives of those members of the human race who are characterized by disobedience, among whom each and every one of us in the Christian community also formally for our own selfish benefit conducted our lives by means of those lusts which are produced by our flesh, specifically by indulging those inclinations which are produced by our flesh. In other words, those impulses which are the product of our flesh. Consequently, each and every one of us as a corporate unit in the Christian community caused ourselves to be children who are objects of wrath because of our natural condition from physical birth, just as the rest correspondingly caused themselves to be children who are objects of wrath because of their natural condition from physical birth. But because God is rich with regards to mercy, because of the exercise of his great love with which he loved each and every one of us, even though each and every one of us is a corporate unit with spiritually dead ones because of our transgressions, he caused each and every one of us to be made alive together with the one and only Christ. Each one of you as a corporate unit is saved because of grace. Specifically, he caused each and every one of us as a corporate unit to be raised with him. Correspondingly, he caused each of us to be seated in the heavenlies because of our faith in and union and identification with Christ Jesus. He did this so that he could display for his own glory during the ages which are certain to come the incomparable wealth which is the product of his grace because of kindness for the benefit of each and every one of us because of our faith in and union and identification with Christ Jesus. Each and every one of you as a corporate unit are saved because of grace by means of faith. In other words, this salvation never originated from any one of you as a source. It originated as the gift from God. It does not originate from meritorious actions as a source, so that a person cannot, for their own benefit, enter into the state of boasting. For each one of us are his creative workmanship, for each and every one of us has been created by means of our faith in and union and identification with Christ Jesus in order to produce actions which are divine good. These God prepared in advance so that each of us would conduct our lives by means of them. Verse 11, Therefore, and that therefore is telling us that what's to come is an inference from uh, the previous 10 verses. Therefore, each and every one of you as a corporate unit must continue to make it your habit of remembering that formerly each of you who belong to the Gentile race with respect to the human body, specifically those who receive the designation uncircumcision by those who receive the designation circumcision with respect to the human body performed by human hands. Each one of you used to be characterized as without a relationship with Christ. Each of you used to be alienated from the nation of Israel's citizenship. Specifically, each of you used to be strangers to the most important promise, which is the product of the covenants. Each of you used to not possess a confident expectation of blessing. Consequently, each one of you used to be without a relationship with God and the sphere of the cosmic world system. However, because of your faith in and union and identification with Christ Jesus, each one of you as a corporate unit 
who formerly were far away, have been now brought near by means of the blood belonging to this same Christ. For he himself personifies our peace, namely, by causing both groups to be one, specifically by destroying the wall which served as the barrier, that is, that which caused hostility between the two races and the two races with God. In other words, by nullifying, by means of his human nature, the law composed of the commandments, consisting of a written code of laws, in order that he might cause the two to be created into one new humanity, by means of faith in himself and justification, and union and identification with himself through the baptism of the Spirit at justification. Thus, he caused peace to be established between the two races and the two races with God. In other words, in order that he would reconcile both groups into one body to God through his cross. Consequently, he put to death the hostility between the two races and the two races with God by means of faith in himself at justification and union and identification with himself through the baptism of the Spirit at justification. Correspondingly, he as a result came proclaiming peace for the benefit of each one of you, namely those who were far off, likewise peace to those who were near. Consequently, through the personal intermediate agency of himself, each and every one of us is a corporate unit in the Christian community. Namely, both groups are experiencing access by means of the omnipotence of the one spirit to the presence of the Father. Verse 19, Indeed, therefore, each one of you, as a corporate unit, are no longer foreigners to the covenants of promise, that is, foreign citizens, but rather each of you are fellow citizens with the saints, that is, members of God's household, because each and every one of you as a corporate unit have been built upon the foundation, which is the communication of the gospel to each of you by the apostles, as well as prophets, simultaneously, he himself, namely Christ Jesus, as the cornerstone. On the basis of its being continually fitted and inextricably together by means of justification by faith and union and identification with him, the whole building is growing into a holy temple by appropriating by faith, union, and identification with the Lord. In other words, by appropriating by faith, your union and identification with him, all of you without exception are being built together into God's dwelling place by means of the omnipotence of the Spirit. What a profound passage that is with all kinds of implications for us today in the Christian community here in the 21st century. And so, uh, for those who might be uh, jumping into this study a little uh, at a late date with us here, uh, quickly by way of review, uh, this book, it was a circular letter given to the various Christian communities throughout the Roman province of Asia. Uh, and uh, it was not just for the Ephesian Christian community, the destination of this letter. Uh, and we also pointed out that Paul is the author. He identifies himself as such. Uh, there is no evidence to the, that uh, he wasn't. And uh, in fact, the church rejected synonymity, as we pointed out in our, our uh, study of, uh, of this book and the authorship. We also pointed out that the purpose of this letter is to maintain unity um, with uh, the Jew Jewish and Gentile Christian communities, maintaining unity by obeying the command uh, to uh, love one another, John 13, 34, 15, 12. By loving one another, they would experience that which is true of them positionally and will be true of them in a perfective sense in a resurrection body, namely that Jew and Gentile Christians are united to form the new humanity that will reign with Jesus Christ uh, over this earth during his millennial reign after dispossessing Satan and the fallen angels at our Lord's second advent. 
And so we see here that the first chapter uh, we have in verses one, uh, verses 3 through 14 of the first chapter, we have the prologue, introduction of the letter. We have a triadic pattern in verse 3 and also in verses 3 through 14, the work of the Father in eternity past and electing by predestinating us to adoption as sons is mentioned in verses 3 through 6, which was for the purpose of glorif- for his gl- uh, uh, praise of his glorious grace. Verses uh, 7 through 12 describe the work of the Son and redemption at the cross, which was for the praise of God's glory. And then verses 13 and 14, the work of the Holy Spirit at justification and his sealing ministry was mentioned And that was also for the praise of the Father's glory. These verses uh, identify for us the fact that the recipients of this letter are born-again believers. Not only are they justified through faith in Christ and in union with Christ as a result, through the baptism of the Spirit, but they're also practicing the command to love one another. And then we have in verses 15 uh, through uh, verse 23, we have the first of two intercessory prayers in this letter. And these two uh, intercessory prayers serve as hinges to the letter. And uh, this letter, uh, this prayer is prompted by the fact that the, the, the people he's writing to are believers to faith in Christ, the justification, and in union with Christ and practicing the command to love one another that Jesus, Jesus gave the church. And so uh, then we get to chapter 2, and we have Paul describing the pre-justification, pre-conversion state of the recipients of this letter, who Paul identifies in verse 11 as Gentiles, Christians, and he describes the fact that they're enslaved to sin, Satan, and his cosmic system. He does this to accentuate the grace of God, that despite this, God saved them through the merits of the object of their faith, Jesus Christ, saved them from his, them, from his wrath, and also placed them in union with his son, Jesus Christ, and made them alive to, with Christ at their justification by placing them in union with Christ in his resurrection and identifying them with, it, with Christ in his resurrection and session of the right hand of the Father. And this was to praise the Father's glory. It was to uh, also to establish the new humanity over this earth, dispossessing Satan and the fallen angels who are presently the gods of this world. And then we have verses 11 through 22 that wraps up the chapter which we're starting to look at now. Now we're into verse 12 which talks about the Jewish Jewish believers and Gentile believers have been united through justification through faith and union identification with Christ through the baptism of the Spirit. And they're united together, both Jewish and Gentile Christian communities, to form this new humanity. And so, as I said before, this is to, uh, because the remember God created Adam and Eve to rule, rule over the works of his hands, Genesis 1, 26 and 27. But right now, we don't see that being the case. The writer of Hebrews, who I believe is Paul, mentions this in chapter 2, and uh, and because Satan is the god of this world, 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, the whole world is under his power, First John 5.19, he deceives the entire world, Revelation chapter 12, and so uh, all the kingdoms of this earth are, the, uh, are Satan's temporarily, according to Luke 4.6, and so uh, God sent his son to the cross in his crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, and session of the right hand of the Father, destroyed the works of the devil, and was the first stage and restoring humanity as ruler over the works of his hands. And then every believer in the church age, whether they're Jew or Gentile, male or female, slave or free, anyone who trusts in Jesus Christ in the church age is placed in union with Christ and identified with Christ in those events in his life uh, at, through the baptism of the Spirit at justification, and they become members of the body of Christ, the future bride of Christ, who will reign over the works of God's hands during the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. And so this passage is phenomenal. All the problems that we have with race in the world today, in our country, can be alleviated with, the, this, with Paul saying here, the gospel. 
and uh, the gospel changes everything. The gospel has destroyed all the problems, really, that we have in this world. And uh, the reason why this world continues on is they reject the gospel. And they continue to have problems because the world is enslaved to sin and Satan in this cosmic system. And all the problems that we have in this world, economically, uh, racially, sociologically, whatever, you, environmentally, all the problems that we have between the races and the sexes and parents and their children and everything is directly attributed to the fact that the world is a fallen world, enslaved to a devil, the devil and his cosmic system, deceived by that cosmic system, and also enslaved to sin and Satan as well. So this is the problem the world's in, and only gospel, which is about Jesus Christ's victory, the good news of his victory over these things, and uh, through those crucifixion, his crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, session at the right hand of the Father. And so uh, anybody who trusts in Jesus Christ as Savior will experience the victory over sin, Satan, and his cosmic system, and of course, avoid the wrath of God. So uh, if we're in union with Christ, if African American uh, Christians are in union with Christ, and uh, in also white, uh, you know, Anglo-Saxon uh, our uh, Christians are in union with Christ. The, the, the whole problem with race is destroyed because it says that we're all equal in Christ. There's neither Jew nor Gentile. We're all one in Christ. There's, no, there's neither Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, all are one in Christ, Galatians 3, 26 through 28. So if we're all, if we're all equal, if we're all in the right same standing, and we should be because we were, all of us were saved on the merits of the object of our faith, Jesus. So I shouldn't, and you shouldn't, have any problem with somebody who has got a different skin color or speaks differently you, or dressed differently you. They're a brother and sister in Christ if they trusted in Jesus as Savior. So it's very, very important that the, this country and the world hears this. And it changed the Roman Empire. And so, uh, because within, uh, you know, within centuries, of uh, by the by the time of Constantine, we have uh, Christianity made the the uh, state religion, which was a problem by doing that. But it was it, it shows that Christianity had conquered the Roman Empire, and slavery was done away with without a, a civil war like took place in America in the 1800s. And so, if you look on the board, uh, we see that Ephesians chapter two verse twelve is actually a Hody direct object clause in Greek grammar, and this serves as, this means it serves as the direct object of the verb we mentioned on Saturday, the verb manuo, which is in the second person, plural, present active imperative conjugation. And, and that appears in verse 11. And it resumes the holy direct object clause in verse 11, this holy direct, direct object clause in verse 12. So we have a holy direct object clause in verse 11, and it serves as the direct object of the verb manuo, which is the word for remembering. And then now we have another holy direct object clause in verse 12, continuing and resuming the holy direct object clause in verse 11. And that means that these direct object clauses are to receive the action of the verb manuo, which talks about the recipients of this letter remembering something. So verses 11 and 12 tell us what they're to remember, and verse 13 does as well. So this verse, verse 12, contains five more descriptions of these Gentile Christians prior to their justification. And the first of these descriptions asserts that they were characterized as being without a relationship with Jesus Christ. And the second asserts that they were characterized as being alienated from the citizenship of Israel. The third of these descriptions asserts that they were characterized as being strangers to the covenants, which all produced the promise of a savior. And the fourth asserts that they were characterized as not possessing a confident expectation of blessing. The fifth and final de description of them 
asserts that they were characterized as being without a relationship with God and the sphere of the cosmic world system. So the recipients of this letter were Gentile Christians in the first century AD. If you're a Gentile and believe in Jesus Christ, this description is true of you, as well as it's true of me, because I'm a Gentile as well. So a comparison. Uh, and by the way, why is he doing this? Why is he, why is he doing it? Same thing, reason why he did it in uh, verses three, uh, in chapter, uh, the first 10 verses. And in particular, the first three verses, he describes the pre-conversion, pre-justification state of the recipients of this letter, which basically says that they were enslaved to sin and Satan and his cosmic system under the wrath of God. So he's basically showing them now in relation to the, the uh, covenant people of God, Israel, uh, their pre-incarnate state. And again, this is all like he did in chapters, uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, to accentuate the grace of God, which flows from the function of the attribute of God's love. So a comparison, people, of the contents of Ephesians chapter 2, verse, verse 13, and this holy direct object clause in verse 12, indicates that these Gentile Christians, who were at one time, prior to their justification, without a relationship with Jesus Christ, alienated from the citizenship of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, possessing no confident expectation of blessing, and were without a relationship with God. In the world, were brought near to God and His covenant people, Israel, by the blood of Christ. So Ephesians 2.12 is also presenting us the reason why these Gentile Christians were brought near to God and His covenant people, namely, because of their faith in Christ, the justification and union and identification with Him. So therefore, this holy direct object clause in ver which constitutes verse 12, would indicate that this action on the part of God when they were without a relationship with Christ, alienated from the citizenship of Israel, strangers to the covenant of promise, not possessing a confident expectation of blessing, and were without a relationship with God in the world, was to receive the action of being remembered by these Gentile Christians. So this is what we should do. We're in the same boat as these Gentile Christians. If you're a Gentile Christian, this is true of you today. What Paul's saying in verses uh, 11, 12, and 13 is true of us. Because we're church age believers like they are. The church age hasn't ended. It won't end until the rapture, the resurrection of the church, which is imminent. So we should put this into our thanksgiving and prayer and think about it and meditate upon it, how God treated us when we were in such a bad state as we were prior to our justification. But now through our faith in Christ, at justification, and our union identification with Him through the baptism of the Spirit at our justification. We're in a fantastic position. Okay? Now each, we're, we're in a position that's eternal, by the way. Now, each of these five descriptions of these Gentile Christians prior to their conversion to Christianity in Ephesians 2.12 are actually alluding to the privileges God bestowed upon the nation of Israel. If you look at, look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 13 with me again on the board. I'm reading from the today's NIV. Therefore, remember that formerly you, who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time, when you were, before you were a believer, you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So 
that fivefold description of the recipients of this letter, which is true of us Gentile Christians today in the church age as well, in verse 12, that fivefold description is actually alluding to the privileges that Paul mentions about that the Jews possessed in, in the book of Romans, a book we studied in the past. So if you look at my, my uh, notes on the board, each, again, of these five descriptions of these Gentile Christians in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12, are descriptions which are describing them prior to their justification and conversion to Christianity, in other words. They're all alluding to the privileges God bestowed upon the nation of Israel, which are actually enumerated in Romans chapter 3, verse 2, and also Romans chapter 9, verses 4 and 5. So look at, look at Romans chapter 3 with me on the board. So Romans chapter 3, verse 1, I'm reading from my translation. We'll read the uh, Romans 3, 1 and 2, because it presents to us uh, one of the most important privileges the Jews received. It says, therefore, what is the advantage of being a Jew? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? Great in every respect, Paul says. Indeed, the primary one is that they were entrusted with the declarations by God, the Old Testament scriptures. So in Ephesians 3, 2, Paul's asserting that God graciously bestowed upon the Jews the Old Testament scriptures. Look at Romans 9, verses 1 through 5 with me on the board. Again, reading from my translation. I am speaking the truth in accordance with the code of Christ. I am by no means lying, while my conscience does confirm to me in accordance with the code of the Holy Spirit, that as far as my feelings are concerned, there is always great sorrow as well as unceasing anguish in my heart. In fact, I could almost wish that I myself could be accursed, totally and completely separated from Christ as a substitute for my brothers, specifically my fellow countrymen with respect to racial descent, who indeed by virtue of their unique, privileged character are Israelites. To them belongs the adoption of sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service and the, pro and the promises. To them, the Jews, the Israelites, belong the fathers and from them the Christ, with respect to human racial descent. The one, he's affirming the deity of Christ now, the one who is God over each and every living and non-living thing, worthy of praise and glorification throughout eternity. Amen. So, there are eight privileges that the Jews possessed that are listed by Paul in Romans 9, verses 4 and 5. And they are as follows again. To whom belongs the adoption of sons? The second one is the glory. And we'll describe what each one of these are. Three, the covenants. Four, the giving of the law. Five, the temple service. And verse, and the sixth one is the promises. The seventh is the fathers. And the eighth is from them is the Christ with respect to human racial descent. So, in Romans 9, 4, the plural form of the proper name is for Israelites there speaks of the fact that the Jew is a member of a theocracy. Uh, and, and this is very important. America is not a theocracy. You know, people say, oh, it's a Christian nation. It's not a Christian nation. Stop that. It's not a Christian nation. We had a tremendous Christian influence. But when you say a Christian nation, you're saying we're a theocracy. We're not. Only the Jews, the only nation in the history of the world that's a theocracy is the nation of Israel. Now, over there today, it's, except for the Orthodox Jews, the majority of Israelites today are uh, not acting like it's a theocracy, okay? And they're under discipline because of that. And uh, that discipline will end with the end of the, uh, the, the uh, 70th week of Daniel at the second advent of Christ. So 
the, the, the United States had a great influence, Christian, Christian influence, as a result of people being persecuted in, in Europe over the Reformation. And so they came to America, and uh, they started this country, and it was a tremendous Judeo-Christian ethic that started this country. And uh, we were blessed for it. And uh, so we became a superpower. But then with the advent of World War II and our great prosperity, we've drifted away from uh, our, our Christian heritage in this country. But uh, we are, you know, the guys like Jefferson and, uh, and Franklin, they were deists, and they're not, they were not Christians. They had a respect for the scriptures and Jesus as a, a moral teacher, but they really were not born again and saved. And most people don't understand that. Now, there were some, many that were, like uh, Hancock was definitely a Christian. So, but the, again, again, we had, there was a respect for the Bible. But you got to remember the founding fathers, the majority of them, they were a, the benefit, they, they were the, the result of the Enlightenment, really more than what the Bible is uh, teaching us. So it, this word for Israelites here, it speaks of the fact that the Jew is a, a member of, the, of a theocracy. It identifies them as members of a, a unique, privileged covenant, covenant people of God, heir of the promises given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, whose name we pointed out in our study of Genesis, Genesis was later changed by the Lord to Israel. Now this name for Israelites is not the first in the list of privileges that God bestowed upon the Jewish people. Rather, the term Israelites it serves as a as further identification of the last clause that appears at the end of verse uh, chapter nine, verse three, which is, I translate my brothers, specifically my fellow countrymen, with respect to racial descent. It also serves as a heading for the list of eight privileges that God bestowed upon the Jewish people that are listed in Romans nine, verses four and five. So therefore. The eight privileges that follow the term Israelites serve to identify Paul and his fellow Jews who are the unique, chosen, privileged, covenant people of God. Now, the first of these, the adoption of sons, the first of these privileges, which are being alluded to in Ephesians 2.12, the adoption of sons, the word for sons there is weothesia, and in Romans 9.4, it's the, is the only instance in the Greek New Testament that this word is used in relation to the members of the nation of Israel, the majority of whom rejected Jesus of Nazareth as their Messiah. Thus, it is surprising that Paul would attribute this word to unregenerate Israel. Furthermore, it is never used, this word, weothesia, sons, okay? This word is never used in the Old Testament or in Judaism for Israel. Some erroneously conclude that this indicates that the nation of Israel remains the children of God just as church-age believers, i.e. Christians are God's people. However, this interpretation would totally contradict with Paul's teaching us in the first eight chapters of Romans. He teaches in these chapters that it is only through faith alone and Christ alone that one becomes a son and child of God. Furthermore, we cannot explain Paul's great sorrow and unceasing grief for the nation of Israel in verses 2 and 3 if we interpret this word weothesia as referring to Israel as the children of God. Also, Paul teaches in Romans 9, 6, that not all who have descended from Israel constitute spiritual Israel or those whom God recognizes at his covenant, as his covenant people. And uh, so, uh, in other words, a Jew, a true Jew, a, a Jew that's regenerate is a true Jew. So uh, a person, you know, uh, some people say, oh, that the um, a Gentile, if they believe in Jesus Christ, now they become a Jew because Jesus was a Jew. Wrong, wrong. Bible doesn't teach that. We know that because in Acts chapter 15, the first church council, which was about Jewish, uh, was brought about because Jewish Christians were telling Gentile Christians that they must observe the law. The church council said, no, 
They don't have to live like Jews. The Jews' life was governed by the law. And they said no. Okay? So stop trying to walk around like a rabbi. I knew this guy, he's walking around as a Gentile, looking like a rabbi. He had his beard bushy. It looked pretty cool. But he would walk around town with a, uh, you know, a, uh, a Hebrew Bible. It's like, you know, so he's, he's wasting all this time trying to act like he's Jewish. He's not Jewish. Did you descend from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? No. Okay, you're a Gentile. And so you're a Gentile. God maintains the distinctions. Despite the distinctions, he's unified Jew and Gentile believers through faith in his son and the baptism of the spirit as we pointed out. So therefore, we can conclude that Paul's use of this word, we are Thesia, sons, and Romans 9, 4, adoption of sons. This means something totally different when the word is applied to Christians in Romans 8, 15, 23, Galatians 4, 5, and Ephesians 1, 5, as we saw. The adoption is sons. And Romans, listen to me very carefully. The adoption is sons that is mentioned in Romans 9, 4. And uh, is, uh, is different from what we have here and, uh, in, in, in Romans 8, 5, 15, 23, Galatians 4, 5, and Ephesians 1, 5. How so? Well, the adoption of sons in Romans 8, 15, 23, Galatians 4, 5, and Ephesians 1, 5, a passage we studied in detail is related to the individual, whereas the adoption of sons in Romans 9, 4 is national. Let me repeat. The adoption of sons in Romans 8, 15, 23, Galatians 4, 5, and Ephesians 1, 5 is related to the individual, whereas the adoption as sons in Romans 9, 4 is national. Thus, we could say that when he talks about election predestination, in Romans 1, 5, he's not talking about the church in a corporate sense. He's talking about the individual members of the, of the church. Now, in Romans 9, 4, Paul refers to the Old Testament teaching concerning the nation of Israel, that they were God's son in a national sense, meaning that God has set apart Israel from all the nations of the earth for blessing and service. Now, the next privilege that the Jews had that Paul mentions in Romans 9, verses 4 and 5, is the glory. Doxa is the word for glory. And this word refers to the visible manifestation of God's presence that appeared to the nation of Israel throughout her history. And it refers to what we call the Shekinah glory in the Old Testament. Who is that? That's Jesus Christ. The Shekinah glory in the Old Testament. He's the pre-incarnate Christ. He was the Shekinah glory in the Old Testament. The term Shekinah is a transliteration of a Hebrew word, meaning the one who dwells, or we could say that which dwells. The third of these privileges that the Jews possess is the covenants, diatheke. And this word refers to uh, diatheke, excuse me. That refers to the five covenants given to Israel, which four were unconditional and one conditional. The four great unconditional covenants to Israel were one, the Abrahamic covenant, which deals with the race of Israel. And uh, number two, the Palestinian covenant, which is really related to the Abrahamic covenant, or the real estate promise, the land promise of land to Israel, mentioned in Genesis 13, 15, Numbers 34, 1 through 12. And so the third of these unconditional covenants to Israel, found in 2 Samuel 7, 8 through 17 and other places in the Old Testament, is the Davidic covenant, which deals with the aristocracy of Israel. And then lastly, number four, the new covenant deals with the future restoration of Israel during the millennium, it's noted in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. And the only conditional covenant is the Mosaic covenant. And uh, it's the only conditional covenant that Israel received from God 
It's uh, mentioned in Exodus 19, verses 4 through 6, Deuteronomy chapter uh, 4, verses 4 through 8. And you can compare that with Exodus 2, verses 24 through 25, and also Deuteronomy 4, verses 36 through 38, 29, 31, and 1 Chronicles 16, verses 15 through 19. Now, the third privilege we talked about that's listed by Paul that the Jews uh, experience and enjoy is the giving of the law. That speaks, of course, to the law God gave Moses on Mount Sinai. And then we have the word for temporal service. The word actually means just the service, uh, Latreia. And this refers to the service connected with the tabernacle and temple worship. And in Romans 9, 5, we have the phrase, from whom is the Christ with respect to human racial descent. This is the eighth and final privilege that God bestowed upon the nation of Israel. It speaks of the fact that the Messiah, or Savior of the world, would descend from the nation of Israel. So therefore, people, in relation to Ephesians 2.12, these eight privileges in Romans 9, verses 4 and 5, that God graciously bestowed on the nation of Israel, implies that the Gentiles were cut off from each of them. They were not adopted by God, nor did they receive the presence of the Shekinah glory, nor were they given uh, were they given the Abrahamic, Palestinian, Davidic, and New Covenants. They were not given the law, nor the temple service, or the unconditional promises that God made to Israel. And they did not descend from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Lastly, the Messiah did not descend from any Gentile nation on earth. Thus, when Paul describes the Gentiles in Ephesians 2.12, he's alluding to, to each of these eight privileges directly or indirectly. Thus, the five descriptions of the Gentiles in Ephesians 2.12 are from the Gentile perspective, five disadvantages. So, you can go, uh, if you look at uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 13, Paul says again, and I'm reading from the, today's NIV, Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who are called themselves the circumcision, the Jews, which is done in the human body by human hands, Remember that at that time, what time? Prior to your conversion, as unregenerate people, you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, reminds you of Ephesians 2, 4, doesn't it? Yeah, doesn't it? It's there too. But now, you know, actually, but's there. So, but now, in Christ Jesus, verse 13, you Gentiles, who once were far away, meaning you were not in a covenant relationship with God, you didn't didn't possess any of these uh, privileges that the Jews had, mentioned by Paul in Romans three one and two, with the scriptures in Romans nine four and chapter nine verses four and five. This is why we were far away from God, far away from the Jewish people, really. So he says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away from God because you didn't were in a covenant relationship with Him, have been brought near. By the blood of Christ. So, how in sense, what sense have we been brought near? Uh, well, we'll talk about this. Uh, remember, Paul alludes in Romans uh, 11, he talks about the Gentiles being wild olive branch. And of course, the olive tree is, uh, is Israel. And in that passage in Romans 11, the, the branches that are on the olive tree are regenerate Jews. The, bran- the ones that are not on the tree, those branches, they're unregenerate Jews. We're the wild olive tree. So we get engrafted in, which is contrary to nature, which is talking about the supernatural nature of this union of Jewish and Gentile Christians. 
okay? Because you just didn't do that. It was against nature. That's what's talking about the, the uh, when you studied Romans 11 with me, you'll know what I'm talking about. So, so you and I, at the moment of our justification of Gentiles, we were united to the Jewish remnant in the church, and thus we were able, as, because of this union, and being tied together with the remnant of Israel, we now experience the blessings of the new covenant, and two of the blessings were get to the Spirit, and what else? Forgiveness of sins. So we are experiencing that because of our faith in Jesus at justification and our union identification with Him. And when we get to chapter 3, Paul's going to talk about something incredible that, you know, in his, in his second prayer in this letter, uh, in fact, you can look at it now, Look, look on the board, look at Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. This is pretty cool. We'll get to this. I'm actually starting to work on it now. But he goes into this, this mystery, uh, which is a mystery doctrine for the church age, wasn't known to Old Testament saints, and it's about us Gentiles in relation to the Jewish uh, believers in the church. So it says in Romans, uh, Romans, Ephesians 3, 1, look at that on the board, Romans 3, 1. So Paul says, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you, stewardship. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I've already written briefly. And he wrote about it briefly in Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2, 11 through 22, and also Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. He says, I'm reading this, then you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. Now he elaborates which was not made known to people in the other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise of Christ Jesus. Now think about this. In the Old Testament, and Paul mentions this in Romans 15, the Gentiles would come to, to the Savior, the Messiah, is prophesied in the Old Testament. But this is something they didn't know in the Old Testament. It's a mystery. It's the divine secret that nobody in the Old Testament, Old Testament prophets, didn't know about. That these Gentiles one day, and during the church age, which was a mystery dispensation, would be in union with Jewish believers and who are in union with the Messiah. So then it goes on to say, fascinating passage, this mystery, he says again in verse 6, is that through the gospel, the Gentiles, Gentile Christians, are heirs together with Israel. And that means... Un, that's regenerate Israel, born again Israel, members together of one body, and shares together with the Jews, Jewish Christian, and the promise in Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of His power. Although I am le less than least of all God of the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless, boundless riches of Christ, and to make plain to everyone the administration of this ministry a mystery which is for ages past kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent, now this is very important, and this tells you Paul was imprisoned. Remember he says he's the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the Gentiles. Here's why he was imprisoned. Because what he was preaching, and this is true of any believer, any pastor that's teaching this, expect to have trouble because you're saying something that's announcing to Satan and the fallen angels that their, their, their demise is imminent. And it's sure to happen. And so look at verse 10. His intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God, the multifaceted wisdom of God should be made known to who? 
the rulers and the authorities, Satan's kingdom and the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you therefore not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. Why should they not be uh, uh, feeling discouraged about his sufferings, his Roman imprisonment? Because this is why he was imprisoned. Because he was, uh, he was proclaiming Christ's victory and the church's victory over Satan and his kingdom. That's why it was being proclaimed to them through the church that this is what God, so this is a tremendous thing. This is why Paul was in prison. This is why Paul suffered trouble. And any pastor that follows the example of Paul and preaches what Paul preaches here, teaches it, is going to have trouble as well. Okay? And it's a deep, deep trouble because it's basically saying the, it's over. We're, we, this is, we're taking over. And it's going to be, it's very imminent because the rapture is imminent. All right? Now go back. To that passage in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. So it says, Paul writes, and let's look at my translation of those verses, since I worked so hard on them. <laughs> Ephesians 2, 11 through 13, on the board. Therefore, each and every one of you Gentiles, as a corporate unit, must continue to make it your habit of remembering what? Remembering that formally, each of you who belong to the Gentile race, with respect to the human body, specifically those who receive the designation uncircumcision, by those who receive the designation circumcision, with respect to the human body performed by human hands, each one of you, Gentile church age believers, used to be characterized as without a relationship with Christ. Each one of you used to be alienated from the nation of Israel's citizenship. Specifically, each one of you used to be the strangers to the most important promise, which is the product of the covenants. Each of you used to not possess a confident expectation of blessing, and consequently, each one of you used to be without a relationship with God in the sphere of the cosmic world system. However, verse 13, because of your faith in and union and identification with Christ Jesus, each and every one of you Gentiles in the, in the Gentile Christian community who formerly were far away have now been brought near by the means of the blood, the death of Christ, belonging to this same Christ. So why, So this is telling us, again, us Gentile Christians, that God's for us. He's not against us. He loves us. And just like the Jewish believers and the church. And so we should rejoice and know that we have, we, we, it, we're on equal footing with Jewish, uh, we're not second-rate citizens, us, us Gentiles. And this is very important to understand why Paul would be worried about uh, talking about this. If you read Romans, you know, and you, particularly Romans 14, and you read different places, Paul's very concerned, and you can see in the book of Acts, Paul's very concerned that the Jewish and Gentile wings of the church would continue to experience unity with us, which is the purpose of this letter, Ephesians. And that's maintained by obeying the command to love one another. John 13, 34, 15, 12. And all that involves all the various one another commands of Scripture. And so... We need to, uh, so he wanted them uh, to uh, know that, that the, the Jewish believers should not have any kind of uh, prejudice or animosity to the Gentiles, Christians, and vice versa. Why? Because they're both on equal footing. No, no one's a second-rate citizen. And so this was big news because uh, the church, you know, started off with Gentiles, us Jewish, uh, Jewish, uh, Jewish individuals who believe in Jesus. That's clear from the book of Acts, right? Uh, and the and the gospels, but 
Then the Gentiles started to come in. And Genesis, Acts chapter 2 records Cornelius uh, becoming a believer with him and his family, a Gentile Roman centurion. And so Peter had to be told in a vision in Acts chapter 10 that it was all right to go into a Gentile's home because they didn't have anything to do with each other. So there was culture shock when Jewish and Gentile Christians were meeting together because they used to never eat together because the Jews were under the dietary regulations law, which is what Roman four, Romans 14 is all about. Okay? So this was quite interesting. This was the big, uh, big, big challenge that Paul, one of the great big challenges Paul was uh, had with making sure that the Jewish and Gentile wings of the church would continue to experience fellowship with each other because uh, and unity, experience unity with each other because there's unity between them through the baptism of the Spirit and also, in a perfective sense, there will be when all of us are in a resurrection body. And and then, at that point, we'll assume authority over this earth at Christ's second advent. So, what a passage. So, we, we're just beginning to touch the surface of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12. And we'll break down these, uh, these five descriptions of us prior to our justification. And verse 12, we'll start to pick away, pick away at those. And then, as we before we move on to verse 13. So... We'll pick this up on Thursday. Today's Tuesday, right? We'll pick this up on Thursday at 11 a.m. Central Standard Time. And uh, hopefully you'll join us then. And let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time to study your word. We pray that this lesson be a great blessing and encouragement to you people, bringing glory to you and your son, Jesus Christ. And thank you and praise you for another day of Bible doctrine. In our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.